You've been lied to, but you don't know how. You've searched, you've struggled, you've cried out. You want the truth, but where is it? You've wandered, you've fought, you've strived, and you have not been satisfied. What is truth? Where is truth? Who is truth? The kingdom of God. Mind control. The last days. Higher dimensions. Unity. The power of faith. Discovering the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. God has promised that he will hide us under his feathers and under his wings we will trust. His truth shall be our shield and our buckler. Discovering the Truth with Dan Devon is the premier program that is designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program is designed to show you how to become more than you have ever imagined through the power of truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And now, prepare for your host, Dan Duvall. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. This program is designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program is a production of Bride Ministries, and you can find us at www.bridemovement.com, www.thefireplacechurch.org. Now, uh, this weekend, folks, I'm very excited to let you know that we will be having our first Sheep Nations and the End of the Age Conference. Why the first? Because there will be two. There was so much material when I went to make this conference that I said, no, even with a three-day weekend webinar, I have to split this up and do it in two parts. It's just too much. So this weekend, we'll be having the first, and next weekend, we'll be having the second. Now, registrations are going to end Friday afternoon. You won't be able to sign up after that. And uh, for those of you that have signed up, I'm so looking forward to hanging out with you this weekend. We're going to have a lot of fun, a lot of discussion, a lot of dialogue, maybe some debate. Um, hopefully, we'll all walk away having learned something and being uh, having been equipped with some new things. So I, I, I really want to encourage you, if you're listening to this on Thursday and you still have some time, get to BrideMovement.com, go to our Classes and Events page, sign up for Sheep Nations and the End of the Age Conference Part 1. This week, we'll be having the Fireplace Church as usual at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on Sunday night. The following Sunday, we'll be having our first The Fireplace Church live event, which will be a webinar-style church service. And it, truly, we're just going to hang out. I mean, it's, it's going to be me. It's going to be live. I'm going to be teaching on some stuff. I'm actually going to continue with this series I've been doing at The Fireplace Church in, in the produced style we always do it. But it's going to be in a live format. You're going to see my face. You're going to get to ask questions. Talk to me. I get to talk to you. We're going to experiment with this um, on the weekend of the 16th, same time, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We're going to send a direct link to those of you that tell us you want to be there. So if you want to be there, 
Be sure to go to bridemovement.com, go to the Fireplace Church Live. It's under classes and events right next to the Sheep Nations and the End of the Age Conference, except, you know, for the Fireplace Church, it's free. You can sign up. It costs nothing. Just put your name and information in there, and that way we know to send you an email when we are going to do it. Now, I just want to take a moment and say, hey, thank you to all of you that have been supporting us financially. We are going to, you know, really be uh, working on moving through this list of survivors that have applied for help through Bride Ministries. How are we doing that? Well, um, every time we get enough, we are writing a uh, contract to one of our DID coaches for a number of hours. It's about two months of work uh, for those that are applying for help. And, you know, I'll tell you what, we're able to do that because you guys support us. Also, we're able to run the Fireplace Church. We are able to um, run this podcast and continue to produce materials and teachings, that are blessing and equipping you. If you want to sow into Bride Ministries, I invite you to support us at bridemovement.com or thefireplacechurch.org. There are donate buttons on both of those places. Um, We do have a new P.O. box. And you can write to us or send us anything, uh, monetary or otherwise, uh, at P.O. Box 835661. That's P.O. Box 835661 Richardson, Texas 75083. Yes, I have moved. I'm living in a new note location. And so if you are sending things to my other P.O. Box, I would recommend that you now address it to our new P.O. Box address. And that has been updated at our websites as well. I um, am going to leave you with that. Folks, I don't have anything else to say right now. I am excited about the month of August. In August, I will be in Fort Worth. Um, speaking the first weekend, I will also be in Toronto, Canada, speaking the second weekend. And of course, that third weekend, we will having the Sheep Nations and the End of the Age Conference Part 2. So August is a big month for us, and we're really looking forward to what God's going to do with that said. We're going to get to Arthur Burke. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. <laughs> We are back on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, and I'm sitting here with Arthur Burke for the second time. Now, for those of you that heard our first interview, it was a lot of fun, Um, and we had a lot of positive feedback from our first program getting into subjects like the human spirit and a lot of the misconceptions that go along with that Revelation and and uh, the idea of being a three part man and how that unpacks into alignment with God's kingdom. Well, folks, today he's joining me to talk about something else that's really exciting, and it, we're, it's called the five levels of holiness. And um, for those of you that may not have heard the first program or are unfamiliar with Arthur, he Arthur Burke is the founder of the Sapphire Leadership Group. 
He describes himself as a learner and a worshiper. He is also a pioneer in the areas of inner healing and deliverance and has brought a language to the subject of ministry to the human spirit that many are just catching up with now. He has a number of books, including one that I've actually referred many people to called Blessing Your Spirit, Blessing Your Soul is another book. He also has a book called Pure Joy, a number of CD sets covering a broad range of subjects. You can find him at www.theslg.com. Uh, if you are a German speaker, you can find um, their materials at sapphireaustria.com. Arthur, welcome back to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Thanks, Dan. Really enjoyed the last time. You have a very nimble mind, and we had a barrel of fun going back and forth. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, you know, Arthur, when people hear the word holiness, I'm just going to be honest, people think it's a drag. It's like, oh, that means legalism. That means boredom. That means the thing about Christianity that no one's excited about. But you have a really, really amazing revelation that we're calling the five levels of holiness. Now, I want to ask you to introduce us to this concept. What was your journey towards understanding what you call the five levels of holiness? It was exactly what you described. I grew up in an evangelical fundamental home. I was a black sheep by the age of two and a juvenile delinquent before I was a juvenile. And holiness was a club that they used to beat me over the head, and I hated it because I knew I could never achieve it. It was an inevitable nuisance word in the Bible, but I had no hopes of ever being reconciled to the word. So when I left home and people didn't beat me over the head with it anymore, I tried my best to ignore it while I built out my spiritual life however I could. Around the time I turned 40, I decided it was time to actually grow up and take a look and see what it meant, because by then so much of my original theology had been restructured by a fresh look at Scripture. So I dug into the Word to see if I could come to peace with the concept of holiness, and discovered to my amazement that there's a sequence of five things that were made holy, and the sequence matters, and it has completely revolutionized my approach to life. So my journey was exactly like a whole lot of other people's, that it was not a fun word to begin with. Interesting. Okay, so talking about sequence, first of all, Arthur, what does the concept of holiness actually mean? I work a lot with logic and parallels. I see something, I try to flip it the other way and see what it looks like. So we look at the issue of holiness and don't have a picture for it. We look at unholiness and we can fill in a thousand different expressions of what unholiness is. But when you try to get the average person to describe holiness, all they can do is describe zero. They can describe lack of sin, and that's not holiness. That's lack of unholiness. So I took the simple sentence, holiness is violating God's principles, and tried to flip it, or unholiness. Unholiness is violating God's principles. So holiness would have to be God's principles, 
and then I struggled for a while with the verb and finally came up with implementing. Another phrase I would use is weaving together. So being still, doing nothing right or wrong is zero. Violating the principles is below zero. And holiness constitutes weaving together a lot of principles in order to express the life of God that is in the principles. So let's use a simplistic illustration. You have one family where they have good kids. The kids obey. You have another family that has parented in a much more complex manner. They've woven together 20 different principles for parenting instead of two or three. There's going to be a richer spiritual ambiance around the second family. That, to me, is holiness. It is a significant weaving together of compatible principles to create some weight and some substance. I use the illustration of an airplane. How many thousands of laws of science have to be woven together in the right proportions, the right sequence, the right timing, the right cadence for an airplane to get off the ground? It's a whole lot more sophisticated than bouncing a basketball. I can dribble a basketball, and I'm using, I don't know, two or three principles. That's not much mass. That's not much weight. But an airplane with an incredible mass of the laws of science all focused on a single objective, that has some power, some substance, some oomph. So holiness to me is not the absence of sin. It is the skillful, wise weaving together of a complex of compatible principles in order to have their expression in life, in order for life to be robust instead of thin. You know, that, not a theological picture, but that's the picture that I use. That is profound, Arthur. And, and here's the thing, right? It, if you want to find lifeless Christianity, find a bunch of people that are trying to do nothing. Um, because they think everything is sin. It, it's very, very, uh, wow, <laughs> rigid. And, and you know, this is what is profound, right? So when you begin to move to the other side of the veil, you know, you begin to work with seers or, you know, God unlocks that gift of discerning of spirits. And, you know, I, I definitely have seen into the spirit. And, you know, I'll tell you this, right? In some churches, holiness means you're not allowed to dance, but yet, in the Spirit, we've actually seen Jesus dance. He's taken people and danced with them. He does this Jewish dance sometimes. Uh, we've seen the angels dance. And people have done things like say, well, dancing is not of God because it's evil and it's not holiness. <laughs> well, but they're actually out of touch with the culture of heaven. And one of the things that I, I believe your revelation does is it actually is working to connect people to the culture of heaven, which is what I think holiness is intended or designed to do in the first place. And, and, and so I find what you're saying to be absolutely profound. Now, 
before we get into them individually, Arthur, what are the five levels of holiness? Can, can I back up just a moment, spend just another minute here on the definition? Yes. You use the issue of dancing. Let's take that word out because it is a polarizing word and use the principle instead of motion. So motion is a scrabble letter, if you will. It's a principle. It's a component. And you can weave it together in a lot of different ways, for evil or for good. I go to Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel 1, we have the planned ordination of Ezekiel. He thought he was going to be a priest. God yanks him over into the prophetic role without much of a full disclosure statement. And it's being done in Babylon on incredibly defiled land. The land needed to be cleaned up. Well, there's a lot of different ways to clean up land. God used fire to clean up Mount Sinai, and God used motion to clean up Babylon, not the city, but the nation. So he sent the whirlwind and the wheels within wheels and lightning and the torches and the four living creatures and their wings. He sent, I think, about a dozen to 16 different kinds of motion and used motion as a principle in order to cleanse the defilement that was in the land and prepare it. So that's one component. Then the seraphim also had sound. They also had visibility. We have three different components there that we use for the sanctifying. Eventually they held a platform, a crystal platform over their head, because even that wasn't enough to cleanse the land. And we bring down a throne of sapphire to set on that crystal platform. And finally, there's enough different principles woven together that the God of eternity can deign to come down to this earth. He sits on the sapphire throne, and he presides over the ordination of this man to the prophetic ministry, the only or the most detailed ordination that we have in Scripture, the only one I'm immediately aware of that was personally done by Almighty God. And you see him weaving together a lot of principles, motion being one of them. So motion is a principle. It can be used for evil dancing. It can be used for righteous dancing. It's a principle. It's a building block. And how you weave those things together the, the multitude of principles will affect the richness of the spiritual climate or the tapestry that you end up with. One of my most surreal experiences was ministering at a church that was really in a spiritual warfare. They had just purchased a warehouse in the bad side of town because that's all they could afford. They knew warfare. They went into that place and nuked it and carpet-bombed it and did so much warfare, there wasn't a spiritual cockroach left. <laughs> but when I walked in, the, it was a horrible place to preach. It was, it's preaching in a vacuum. There was no spiritual climate. All they knew how to do was destroy the bad guys. We'll tell you what, they destroyed the bad guys. But it's totally different from walking into a church where there is a culture of awe, or there's a culture of faith, or there's a culture of worship, and there's a texture in the spiritual climate that is the result of a 100,000 actions and principles being woven together. Speaking into a spiritual vacuum in a spiritual warfare church was a surreal experience. 
No holiness, just one big fat zero. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, wow. Okay. You know, Arthur, um, I love that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that is you're explaining this whole thing is you see a lot of balance as and mechanics, right? Mm-hmm. Because the mechanics, I love mechanics because what mechanics do is they unlock reproducible results. Exactly. Um, and, and this is where I, I, I really like, you know, what your ministry does and, and truly what we seek to do as well is is produce tools, resource equipping that are based around not, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, I, I jiggled my hip three times when I said that one thing and it worked. And so, um, you know, but there's an actual grid for spiritual mechanics that allow for reproducible results because of the depth of understanding and the ability to navigate what God has ordained to be. Mm-hmm. Um, well said. With that said, uh, back to the five levels of holiness. What are they? All right. Uh, I was very much into word studies back at that time, so I began in Genesis with the Hebrew word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm not Hebrew. And was shocked to find that there was only one usage of holiness in the whole book of Genesis. And that was on the seventh day. God sanctified time. First thing that he made holy was time. That kind of yanked my paradigm, but I kept on going. The picture of holiness is all the way through Genesis, but not the word. The next place that we find the word is in Exodus at the burning bush. God sanctified land. Holy ground, take your sandals off, you know the story well. So time is the first thing that was sanctified, made holy. Land is the second thing. The third thing was community. The nation of Israel, on Passover night, the entire nation was made holy in preparation for the Exodus. We have a bit of a pause there. And then the fourth thing that was made holy was the tabernacle. When it was built, every single item had to be touched with the anointing oil before the grand debut of usage. And I call that the birthright, because Israel's birthright was to be a kingdom of priests to the nations of the world. Now, understandably, they forfeited that as a nation, and it all got dumped into one tribe, the tribe of Levi. But that was their original birthright, is to be a priestly nation. The last thing that we see that was made holy so far, and I'm very open for this to be enlarged as time goes on, is offices, not four walls and a floor, but the office of priest and high priest. Each of them had to be sanctified as they were set into the office. So that's the model that we use right now. Time, land, community, birthright, and office. And historically, we start in the middle with number three because we know about people, we know about our sins and the sins of our forefathers and the bloodline and what's been done to us and all that. And while we're deeply vested in number three, we've got two bungee cords around our legs, one and two, the time of the land. And that hugely um, yanks us back. Then we have the issue of office and birthright. I did a teaching in January on the office of marriage 
and how if there's a curse on the office of marriage, the man can go to counseling, the woman can go to counseling, you can go to deliverance and inner healing until the cows come home, the marriage isn't going to get any better because the curse isn't on him, the curse isn't on her, it's on the office. So to be able to diagnose more strategically where the defilement is speeds up deliverance and inner healing and with your long-term cases like SRA to follow the sequence that God gave and cleanse time then land then begin to work on the perps and the parts and all that stuff speeds it up I know I've done it both ways hmm. now um, that's see and this is the thing right so here we are I've titled this program the the five levels of holiness with Arthur Burke. And people are, are probably going to look at this and say, I'm only going to listen to this because Dan Duvall's interviewing Arthur Burke, but this subject is not interesting to me. Now, folks, at this point, you're probably shocked that, okay, they haven't even really brought up the issue of sin much. We're, they're talking about time and land as a component of holiness? And, and that's... That's the thing, folks, uh, that, you know, God is really expanding in, in this season. How we look at his agenda for us, you know, and, 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 and truly, the, I think the enemy has really worked overtime to get people so focused on their sin and shortcomings, they can see nothing and no one else. They, they can't even see Jesus for the sin that he's constantly holding in their face as that you know <laughs> all the reasons why they are failing god and and truly god is not so much interested in keeping us in conscious but in delivering us into the fullness of his life and 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 um arthur i am very excited to let you talk about how understanding time land community birthright and office accelerates the work of God in our lives. I mean, that, that's just incredible. So beginning with time, how have you implemented this revelation and um, how have you seen it bear fruit? Okay, let's use a couple of different pictures. Let's start with the original. On the seventh day, God blessed the day. He made it holy. He sanctified it. We need to come to terms with the fact that time was not defiled. It was at zero. There had been no sin committed, no defilement, no brokenness. Time was perfectly pristine the way God had created it on the first day, which means that it validates my model for holiness, that holiness is plus numbers. Holiness is God imprinting something onto time in order to make that time dynamic. Now, my theory that I can't back up with chapter and verse in Greek and Hebrew and Aristens is that God took the timelines of every single one of us and imprinted them onto human time. We were all designed before the foundation of the world according to Scripture. Psalm 139, every day ordained for us was written in his book before one of them came to be. So my storyline, my timeline, was written in the book before the earth was created. And I think on that seventh day, he took all of our timelines, 
all of the treasures, all the blessings that he intended to implement, and built that power into time. And each one of us has a cadence, a rhythm, a cycle of time. We see this illustrated in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does these things, and then down in verse 3, he is like a tree that bears fruit in its season. And when I looked at that, I asked God and said, okay, so what's the fruit-bearing season of a tree? I rarely get a straight answer back from God. I ask a question, I get a question, and he came back and said, uh, what kind of tree? And I realized I was a teenager at the time, was planting fruit trees right, left, and center in the jungles of the Amazon in Brazil, and my papaya trees would bear fruit in a few months, my cashew trees in about three years, and the Brazil nut trees took about 75 years to begin bearing fruit. So each individual has a cadence, has time. Some, like Samuel, began bearing fruit early on, and it went through their lives. Others, like uh, Moses, began bearing fruit at 80. Some, like Esther, had fruit for a two-week period of time that changed world history. But anyway, we have our individual timelines. And based on that, we have gone two directions in application. First of all is studying our own lives to see what the cadence is. I came across this the hard way. My daughter on a Saturday morning called me from the back of an ambulance, or actually it was the ambulance driver that called me. She was on the way to the hospital. I rushed there. She had been standing at the photo counter at Walmart, passed out, flopped backwards, split her head open on the concrete floor. And that began an insanity in the hospital and so on. Eventually, she's out. The dust is settled. And I said, um, Father, can we um, talk? What was that about? And he asked me a question, said, how old was she? I'm, you know, like a guy, got to stop and think it over. Says so she's 22. And God raised his voice and said, how old was she? Thinking, okay, let's, let's do this more carefully. I knew the answer was still wrong, but she's 22. He raised his voice a third time, said, how old is she? And I'm scrambling, and finally I come back tentatively and say, um, 22 and a half? And he says, yes, and hung up the phone. End of discussion. I'm thinking, okay, so the answer to this is that she's 22 and a half years old. What is that about? And eventually we realize that in our families there's a cycle of 22 and a half years. Every 22 and a half years there is something bad that happens that devours our finances and nearly kills us. Well, I went after that, cleaned it up in me and in my kids, too late to clean it up for my parents, and looked at my own life and realized, so that's what happened. At 45, which is 22 and a half times two, I had this huge lurch where so much stuff came together in my life. It's because it was a cycle of time. It was something that got it imprinted on my time before the foundation of the world. And it happened, whether I knew it or not. So then I did the math. Okay, 45 plus 22 and a half, 67 and a half. 
I'm not 67 and a half yet, but let me tell you, I will be so ready when 67 and a half comes around to get everything that God has in store for me. And if I live to be 90, it's going to be a big one. Um, because there's this cycle of time that God has designed to my life, unique to our family, to pour out his blessings on us. So that's one example of how this principle of holy time, God imprinting something positive on time on the seventh day, affects me on an ongoing basis. Now, that is profound because I've had this phenomenon reported to me by others as well, where they have noticed exactly what you described every so many years. There is... But oftentimes, and this is the thing that's interesting, oftentimes it's it's bad and not Absolutely. good. And now, I have a question, Arthur. Uh, when it comes to the, the cadence of time in a person's life, do you believe that the enemy piggybacks on God's ordained cadence to steal what could be a blessing? Or do you think he's putting in his own counterfeit versions of time cadences in a bloodline lineage or whatever to establish a um, you know <laughs> patented way of stealing from that family or is it both how do you how do you view this i would say both um for sure every blessing that comes brings with it an opportunity to mess up and the devil is right there ready to coach us on how to be stupid so there's a whole theology, we call this the Midianite Curse, and we have an album called The Seven Curses and Blessings. Um, there's a whole theology on how we can violate God's intent and damage the blessings so that there is a curse on exactly the cadence that was supposed to be blessed. But the encouraging thing is that when you find a cadence of curses in your life, that could be every 22 and a half years, or it could be every year at a particular month, bad stuff happens, you know that that is a perversion of the original, that God intended for there to be blessing in that place. I had another curse on my life, and that was in the months of May and June, every single year. It didn't matter what was going on in life. The bottom fell out of our income, and the bottom fell out of half the stuff we owned. It was ugly. And I spent the next 10 months trying to dig out of the hole, only to have it happen all over again. Well, when we found out about the Midianite curse and went after that, it was in July. So, you know, I have like nine months to hack and whack, and I hacked and whacked with a great deal of passion, not a whole lot of smarts and theology, but I wanted this thing done. And next year I'm waiting for May to come around. Did I just wound the bear? Did I graze it? Did we succeed? And to my absolute shock, in the month of May, of that next year, we had more income than we had in six months of the previous year without my doing anything differently because we had broken through the curse and the blessing was flowing. So for those that are discouraged at this point of frustrated, wounded with these curses on time, know that it is fixable. It's not that difficult to break out from under when we identify the root issue and there is blessing waiting on that cadence to transform our lives and I look at 22 and a half ugly man I messed up made a wrong call deep damage 45 by then it was cleaned up and I'm waiting for 67 and a half to come around to get some really good stuff 
Now, I have to ask the question, Arthur. For those of my audience that are listening to you talk and saying, oh my goodness, that's me. Huh. How did you break the evil cycle on, my, uh, on your time? Um, do you have a few nuggets that you can give people, maybe prayer points, on how to address the time? Sure. It really boils down to a single sentence. The Midianite curse comes into your life when you put comfort ahead of calling. We go back to Midian. He was one of the sons of Abraham. Abraham had eight sons, and he wasn't supposed to. God had already chased off the first wife and the first son because he wanted the attention of Abraham to be exclusively on Isaac. This was Abraham's job. Raise one son and do it up big. That was his calling. And he was supposed to sacrifice his comfort for that. And Sarah died, and Abraham wanted a squeeze, and so he got a half-wife. We have a less elegant name than concubine these days. He didn't marry her because he knew it was wrong. He just lived with her, had six sons. He knew it was wrong. Before he died, he gave them gifts and sent them away specifically so they wouldn't be a problem to Isaac because he knew he had messed up. Well, they were a problem for Isaac for the next thousand years. And when somebody puts comfort ahead of their calling, that is what invites in this Midianite curse. The two most common areas that we see it in our life are with sexual immorality, either premarital sex or porn or anything else afterwards. Or secondly, we have Freemasonry and organizations like that where somebody knows that they are sacrificing something for the sake of an immediate financial gain. But there's a lot of other areas where there is a choice of comfort over calling. And when we look at Christ and see the passion that he brought to put calling over comfort, we understand his authority to break this curse. We typically look at Jesus' stories in standalone photos, like a photo album instead of a video. Let me give you a video. He's been working all day in Capernaum, and he is so tired. He says to the boys, we got to get out of Dodge. So they get in the boat, they cross the lake, and there's a big storm that comes up. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. Let me translate that for you. Adrenal fatigue. You don't sleep in the bottom of a boat in a storm in Galilee. You just don't. This guy had played his heart out. He was so maxed out that he couldn't even stay awake in the middle of a storm. They had to wake him up, and then from a place of an empty tank, he stills the storm. That's, you know, a big deal. Puts a lot of energy out to still the storm that dramatically. They get to the other side. They've got one thing on their mind, Starbucks, double shot of espresso. But before they get to the Starbucks, they meet the Gadarene demoniac and Jesus with an empty tank. So he casts out a legion of demons. He's got somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes to disciple this guy and get him ready to be a change agent in the community. The locals come. They stamp persona non grata in his passport, kick him out. He gets back in the boat, tired now. You know, he's worked all day yesterday, had a terrible night. We're going on 24 to 30 hours now. They go back across the Sea of Galilee. They get to the other side, and there is a crowd waiting for them. That's why they left, because of the crowd waiting for them. And the crowd parts, and here comes 
Jairus. Jairus was the leader of the synagogue. Translation, the arch enemy of Jesus, the local opposition. And he comes in desperation in his fancy robes, his wealth, and he throws himself on the ground, not very highbrow behavior, and said, you know, forget the old animosities, forget the theology, my daughter's dying, come on, help. So Jesus, with an empty tank, says, okay, I'll go. Um, not even time to go home and wash his face and change clothes and freshen up after uh, all that last hassle. On the way there, the woman with the issue of blood steals a, a healing from him. He felt it because his tank was already empty, man. You know, you have a quart in the tank and somebody takes a quart and a half, you feel it's emptier than empty. And when all of that was done, he's got to go raise somebody from the dead on a tank that's emptier than empty. That's somebody who has a passion for calling, and he puts his calling ahead of comfort. That is our Lord. And we can stand before these critters and say, look, I did thus and so, my forefathers did thus and so. Yes, we are guilty as charged. We have put comfort ahead of calling. You have a legal right to put this curse on us. And having acknowledged the enemy's legal right because of us or our forefathers to curse our time, we use that most glorious word in the English language. But I have a higher legal right. Let me tell you about Jesus the Christ and his passion for calling ahead of comfort. Let me talk about his being so beat up he can't even carry his cross. And you'd think he could take the morning off. No. On the way to Golgotha, he stops, and he comforts the women of Jerusalem that should have been comforting him. Comfort? No. Calling ahead of comfort. That's our Jesus. So we confess our sins. We confess our forefathers' sins. Whether we know what they are or not, we know that had to be the point of entry for critters taking control of the time, the blessings on time that God gave us. And then we invoke the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And that today, he didn't just go back to heaven to kick back and wait. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is passionate about washing the bride of every spot, wrinkle, and blemish. And eventually, we're going to show up at the marriage supper of the Lamb, shining white, spotless, and magnificent, not because we're cool cats, but because Jesus Christ has been working hard to clean up our sorry selves the whole time that he's been in eternity. And you bring the life of Christ to bear against some forefather or some spring break mistake that you made that allowed time to be defiled, and you can break that curse and you can restore the blessings that God intended you to have on your timeline, because Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven. He left comfort in every imaginable way and came to a stable and was raised in Nazareth and lived hard without armor bearers and without gatekeepers and without boundaries because of the joy set before him. And his life is our more than adequate tool for cleansing and breaking and destroying the Midianite curse from off of our timeline. I get a little wound up over that one. <laughs> I can hear it. That's good. That is good. And, you know, it's, it's kind of encouraging because I'll tell you what, you get into full-time ministry and sometimes it's like, yep, <laughs> I identify. Oh, my gosh. Um, that is powerful, Arthur. And, and so for those of you that are listening and say, yeah, I've had some cyclical time issues that I have taken note of. 
Let me tell you something. The finished work of Jesus Christ is your solution. Now, uh, the second one, Arthur, is land. Can you okay, extra- can we go back to time for just a moment and of, add one of other course. piece? Yes. You know, your frame is SRA, and I'd like to work there a little bit. Mm. Um, somehow the enemy is very aware of the times that God has designed to be defiled, or designed to be blessed, and the enemy tries to defile those times. I'm going to sit with somebody and try to get a big picture of the cycles of their life so I can identify where the key points are. Let's take somebody who's got a 10-year cycle, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. They're going to talk a lot about what happened at 2, 3, and 4 years old, and they'll talk about the big meltdown, the crash at 30. But I find that if we go back and we cleanse even though 10 did not appear to be a terribly defiled year, it gives us tremendous leverage going forward. So I'm going to clean the individual peak points, we call them, the 10, the 20, 30, and 40, sequentially, rather than being pulled into the client's narrative of which were the worst years. And that systematically cleansing time before we begin helps a lot. But then from the brokenness, the pain of day after day really defiles time. So we urge people to begin every day cleansing that day for an entire year. So for 365 days, you're going to cleanse that day in your life. So January 25th, for all the days of my life, everything that happened, whatever curses, whatever sin, whatever violence against me, whatever wrong response to pain, just bring that under the cross of Christ, cleanse every curse, ask every covenant be annulled. And after a year of doing that every day, there's a significant lightening of the load because defiled time is part of the baggage that, or the foundation that the enemy uses to yank everything else sideways. Really good. Well, um, the, the, the the establishment of land uh, occurred um, at the burning bush. What's going on there? And, and what relevance does land have to what God is trying to weave into our lives? There's more about land and scripture than there is about heaven and hell all put together. And land is defiled primarily by three things, bloodshed, immorality, and idolatry. And of course, those appear prolifically in an SRA journey. And a person is tied to land where violence happens to them. So if you are the victim of SRA or the victim of sexual abuse or on a minor level the victim of mugging or on a non-moral level the victim of a car accident, there is a certain spiritual tie that is created to you and that land. That in and of itself is a negative thing, but when you 
add the fact that most SRA is done on land where there's been cumulative SRA, you are then tied to a whole lot of other people and a whole lot of other incidents. It's not just the horrors of what happened to you, but you're tied into a cesspool of iniquity. And that tie to land from trauma will massively limit your ability to heal in a normal way. So let me give an illustration from a totally different field. Our guys go to the big sandbox, they get blown up there, they come back, and they're trying to heal from PTSD or from losing a limb or whatnot, and they're still there for all intents and purposes. They're still tied to that land, and it's difficult to heal from PTSD with um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a primary tool these days, when you have a spiritual tie to the land, and that's why you have the nightmares. You keep experiencing the thing over and over and over again. You're tied to time, you're tied to land, you're still there even though you're here. So regardless of our journey, whether it's major stuff or minor stuff, to go back to land where we have been defiled and to cleanse it is important. I did that with a survivor who's been around. She was conceived in a ceremony and all through her life was every manner of hellacious stuff. And she had been to see most of the leaders in the SRA movement in the States during her life. She crossed my path and I'm thinking, man, what do I have to offer you? But I said, tell you what, instead of working through what everybody else has worked through, let's do land. So I flew to where she was, and we drove a couple of hours to the community where uh, she'd been raised. She didn't know all of her history, but she knew a whole lot of buildings, and we drove and parked and drove and parked and prayed and applied the blood of Christ to the defilement of blood, of immorality, of idolatry, of the rituals, of everything we could think of to each of those places that she could remember, and then we just did a blanket cleansing of everything she couldn't remember because, of course, there were gaps in her memory line. And then I pretty much exited her life, but she took off after that. She was able to grow more. The therapy that she was receiving from more knowledgeable people worked, and today she's an international leader in a variety of areas because I disconnected her from the land. I didn't deal with her trauma. I dealt with the ties that were holding her to the land and keeping her there in the past. You know, Arthur, this is a very deep revelation. Um, injustice performed on land creates unique power centers for the kingdom of darkness to interface with the region. And it, it's, it's tied to land. Absolutely. Uh, places where the people of God gather and enthrone God in their worship and actions create an interface point for regions um, with, with heaven. Mm -hmm. Um land uh, you know and, and it's interesting 
God has spoken to me quite a bit about land because I believe that components of, and I'll be interested, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this one, but, you know, I've saw God on different things like wealth transfer, right? And, you know, the Bible says the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the just great. You know, we're believing for financial breakthrough for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, the devil has very unique ways of, of getting wealth held up in the spirit and creating all kinds of financial turmoil. And I'm not going to get into all of that. But, but one of the things that God brought up in a conversation that I found interesting was the idea that wealth is tied up in the application of actual land. And, of course, you could say, oh, well, yeah, because you can find minerals in the land and mine it, or you can farm land or whatever. But it, it seemed to go a little deeper than that, and I still haven't connected all the dots. However, you are absolutely right when you say, look, the Bible has way more to say about land than it does about heaven or hell. And look at the simple picture of Israel. They were uh -huh. in Egypt, and God said, I'm going to take you out of here. No. He said, I'm going to take you to a land. And he defined the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Those are word pictures for economic abundance due to agricultural abundance. He specifically said this land has a special calling for abundance, and I'm taking you to a land that will give you abundance in order to offset the 400 years that you spent in Egypt with something distinctly less than abundance. He was overt in saying the, the wealth is not going to come through the tabernacle, it's going to come through the land. Now, they did have to obey the principles, but God associated the financial abundance of the Israelite people with the land from day one land flowing with milk and honey <laughs> which is why it would make sense that the devil would go after the land to populate it with all kinds of evil <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> to go before people you know um I, I love this example. You know, God talks about the promised land to Israel. And he says, you know, you're going to go to this promised land flowing with milk and honey. And it's like, yeah, it's great. It is. But when they get there, they're, well, the giants are in the land, right? And a lot of people think that their promised land is going to be the place where they arrive at, you know, nothing to do because God fixed all their problems. And it's like, well, actually, the picture of the promised land means that you enter that arena of your abundance, and then you get to go and war over it. <laughs> Let me jump forward to notches, because what you're describing is birthright. Yeah. Oh, Our birthright man. is the biggest problem that we have to solve. It is a problem that is going to require our unpacking every single bit of who we are to be able to crack the nut solve the problem, but once we have become our full stature of manhood and womanhood, and once we have solved the problem of our birthright, then, and only then, is it a place of extravagant blessing. So I absolutely agree with you that we were made for a problem. We were made to solve a particular problem and are uniquely equipped and gifted for it. I look at Esther. She was made to solve one problem, and she used her finest gift to solve that problem. 
for millennia, worlds over, cultures over, when a woman needs a favor from her husband, she typically puts on a little black dress and, you know, lures him to a place of comfort. She understood that her gift of hospitality vastly exceeded the gift of her body. And he understood that. He had been invited to dinner a few times at her house, and she made it clear that this was not a sex event by inviting Haman along. She gambled the history of Israel, of Judah as a nation, on her ability to solve this problem with what God had given her, which was a staggeringly uncommon gift of hospitality. And her husband, who was a psychopath, bit, he rose like a trout. He said, I'm in. I've had your hospitality. Yeah, I'm going to sweep aside all protocol. I'll be there and guarantee I'll bring Haman along with me. And she was so good at hospitality, she was able to play it a second time. She played coy the first night, said, you know, I'm getting cold feet. I'm, I'm not sure I want to ask you yet, so come back again. And the king was so hooked. She played her design to the max, and she won the battle, cracked the code, and received his signet ring to rule the nation. She promptly handed off to Mordecai since she wanted nothing to do with that. Um, but she possessed her birthright, and it was a battle. It almost cost her her life. It could have cost her her life, and that's birthright, the single biggest problem that we ever have to solve, the one that's going to use everything that we are. I want to I, I, I ask you a question. Now, here's something I ran into. I ran into the idea that a person's ancestors could sign over the birthrights of their children to witch doctors or people that are in the kingdom of darkness in covenants before they were born so that they came in with others laying claim to their birthright. And not only do they have to work to actually establish a birthright, they have to go to war to even get it back from the enemy. Have you run into similar things like this? And, and what would you say to people that are dealing with problems along these lines? Well, first of all, it's nothing original, um, and there's solutions for it. One of the things that I check for very early on with not necessarily survivors, but with everybody is ask them whether they've ever seen a picture or they've ever experienced waking up at night as a child or as an adult and seeing a outline of a man, usually with his arms crossed on the far side of the room, hood over his head. You can't see his face, but there's just a knowledge that this is a male-type figure. It stands there, it doesn't say anything, doesn't move towards you, doesn't threaten you, doesn't hurt you, but there's absolute sheer terror that you feel as a child or even as an adult in seeing this figure in the room. Almost invariably, that is the mark of a covenant. This is the owner of your birthright that has come just to inspect his goods, check it out, see what's happening, and even though he doesn't menace you, you know that you are utterly at his mercy, and it's a terrifying experience. So that mark of the property manager, if you will, coming to check out his assets is very common. Whether you have that or not, there's individuals that experience a very simple proposition. I got an email today. We were living an ordinary life. We took one step in the direction of our calling, and all hell broke loose. Okay, That is a surefire sign 
that you have a curse on your covenant that you're, or your curse on your birthright. It's a surefire sign that your birthright does not belong to you. It belongs to the devil. And we treat it in a very straightforward manner of just taking the covenant to God and asking him to annul the covenant. The passage that I use is Isaiah 28. It says there that the uh, forces of evil in Jerusalem were very unperturbed about God. They were not intimidated by him at all because of the covenant of protection. We are in verse 13. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with a grave we've made an agreement, when the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge, and falsehood our hiding place. The overwhelming scourge is code word for God's judgment. When God's judgment comes, it doesn't touch the critters at all, because they have these, this covenant with death and an agreement with Sheol. So God says, um, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for sure foundation. The one who trusts in it will never be dismayed. And I will make justice the measuring line, that's horizontal, and righteousness the plumb line, horizontal. I'm sorry. I will make justice the measuring line, which is horizontal, righteousness the plumb line, which is vertical. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place, and your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by it, you will be beaten down by it as often as it comes. It will carry you away morning after morning. By day and by night it will sweep through, and the understanding of this message will bring sheer terror to the forces of darkness. So let's use a simple illustration. We have here in California an awful lot of slaves. Slavery is not legal in California, but there are unprincipled people in Thailand that will advertise for maids in the U.S., and they will get the visa and the passport and buy the passage, and somebody comes over as an indentured slave. They're supposed to work for three years, and then they go free, and they've got legal right to work in America. They get here, they turn out to be slaves for life, and they're sex slaves and all the rest of that. And they're told that it's because of some violation of the terms of their covenant. Well, as long as they don't know the truth, the agreement remains in force and they remain in abject slavery. But the moment they find out the truth and they go to court, they are set free by the court and the perpetrator is presumably sent to prison for his crime. In the same way, there's a great number of people that are under an illegal covenant. And my point is, a covenant can be absolutely binding even though it's illegal. It is binding until such a time as you go to court. So there are illegal covenants created by our forefathers that take some or all of our birthright and give it over to the enemy. And when we try to move towards possessing our birthright, we get smacked silly because it's not our birthright anymore. And we have to go to court, bring the plumb line and the measuring line, bring the justice and the righteousness to very, very sophisticated Hebrew words together and say, God, would you look at the terms of this covenant? Would you compare the terms of this covenant to the righteous law of the universe? And if there's any terms in this covenant that are not righteous and just, that we then ask you to annul these generational covenants so they have no power. 
and to cancel the agreements and then to unleash your overwhelming flood, the scourge, against the demons that have been laying claim to our birthright. So that's the process I use run into defiled birthrights or birthrights that are held captive by the enemy repeatedly. And that's why somebody gives me this sad story. I always ask the question, when did it happen? Well, you know, we went married, went to school, everything was fine. And then when we applied to go to the mission field, the day we sent in that letter, mm. all this stuff happened. I say, mm-hmm. You took one step towards your birthright and everything blew up. You've got a curse on your birthright. That's what we need to break. Mm-hmm. Um, that's exactly right. And, and this is what people need to understand. You know, the devil cheats. Like, he is a con artist. Yeah. Like, you, you can't expect that the devil is going to fight fair and he's going to be completely honest in how he tries to leverage legalities of the spirit in his favor to destroy the life of a believer. He cheats. And... It truly, it's our prerogative to call him on it. And that's where a lot of Christians get stuck because they think if the devil's doing something, well, God wants that to happen to them. And it's like, <laughs> it's not so simple, believer. Um, and and I, I love how you say this. You need to take those things before God Most High who sits as judge in heaven and say, look, Hebrews 4, I'm coming boldly before your throne of grace to find mercy and grace up in time of need. God Look at this. Jesus, you're my advocate. Is this legal? Does it stand? Is there justice in this thing? <laughs> because there's probably not. And that is um, something that we as believers, we have to do. We can't just lay down and take it. Um, anyway, that was just outstanding, Arthur. I, I want to come back now because we did skip community. Now, this is probably the one that, you, like you said, most people are familiar with. But I want to give you some time to, to talk about this one and flesh it out as well. I don't think there's a whole lot I need to add there, because that's where the emphasis has been in the body of Christ. I was just reminiscing today with a friend. You know, Back in the 1980s, uh, deliverance was pretty much illegal and heresy because Christians didn't have demons or psychological problems, and we were sneaking around in people's back doors practicing our heresy in private. Today, there is an incredible flood of resources on deliverance and inner healing and every imaginable key of music. So we've come a long, long way in 35 years, certainly not as far as we need to. There's certainly a whole lot of missing truth, things that we lack the tools to be able to resolve yet, but we've come a long way, and that area of community is pretty well developed. I simply propose that looking at time and land before the community is a very valuable exercise. I talked to somebody today about a grandkid and they were proposing neurological problems because of his behavior. He is very, well, it doesn't matter what his behavior is. But I took them back in the timeline and said, look, his behavior was not only normal, it was extraordinarily good right here at this place. And six months later, his extraordinary behavior is really, really bad. He's acting out. 
what happened in that six-month period? Well, he moved from one state to another state. I said, you got to go back and look under that rock. Something happened between point A and point B. He still has a trauma bond to land. He moved out of state, but that land is holding on to him. Now, without that discussion, they're going to put the kid on meds. They're going to label him. They're going to do all sorts of stuff to him. And I think he's hooked into some defiled land and could be set free fairly easily. So not wanting to take anything away from all of the human sin, the sin against us, the victims, our own dumbness, generations, yeah, needs to be done. But it really helps to take off time and land first. And just one quick footnote on the land before we leave, for those of you that don't know where your SRA took place, it doesn't matter. We don't have to go to the land to cleanse it. I became DID due to sexual molestation as a child, and it brought my soul great pleasure to go back to that land, stand on that land, and cleanse it and disconnect myself from it. But it wasn't necessary. I didn't need to go back to Brazil. I could have done it from thousands of miles away. Sometimes it helps to have a visual image. You take a map and draw a big red circle around the city where you were raised as a kid. So when he landed in here, God, that I was defiled on, would you cleanse? Um, but at the end of the day, however you do it, formal or informal, cleansing time and land is a good ramp up for a highly successful cleansing of the community dynamics. Mm-hmm. And um, specifically at the community dynamic, uh, you you do actually relate this to Passover. Talk to me about that. Israel as is a nation had accepted their role as slaves. Mm-hmm. And God gave two separate messages in Egypt that were very important. He said to them, I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. He said something completely different to Pharaoh. He said, these are my people, and they need to worship me, my way, my time, my place. And that distinction is immense in dealing with the demonic realm, the nuts and bolts of daily life are less significant, much more significant, is the central issue of who is God to you, and how do you worship, how have your forefathers worshipped, who have they bent the knee to, under what conditions. Let's do a simple illustration. I'm not a Mason, never have been. I've been told by others that in the third degree of Freemasonry, a man is supposed to take off his wedding ring and proclaim that his Masonic covenant is superior to all other covenants. And when there's any clash between the Masonic covenant and some other covenant, even the marriage covenant, the obligations to Freemasonry come first. Well, I look at my family line. There's a lot of turkeys between Adam and me. I have no idea what covenants they've made and where and how. But it's valuable for me to come and say, as Joshua did, as for me and my family, 
regardless of what's going on in the world around us, regardless of all those other covenants, my covenant with Jesus Christ is superior, it's supreme, it's above, it supersedes all other covenants, whether I know about them or not. It is supreme. That was the point of the Passover that people were proclaiming a defiance of the whole Egyptian culture. It was not a question of whether you could get vacation that day or not. It was a civil disobedience on a magnificent scale, and the whole nation understood. You worship God on his terms, on this specific time, in this way, indoors, or you die. It was that simple, that extreme. So we have this nationwide act of civil disobedience, refusing to yield to Pharaoh, who was God in flesh in the Egyptian theology, and said, on this night, in this way, we are serving the Most High God. And that was the preparation that sanctified the nation enough that they could break out of slavery. Without that submission to the Godship of the Most High God, without that repudiation of the godlike power of Pharaoh, they could not have pulled off the Exodus. They could have not left slavery until they had proclaimed profound submission to the God of Israel, Yahweh. So that initial consecration of the entire nation led then to the next step of the Exodus, and then you have the Red Sea, and eventually there's a formal covenant at Mount Sinai. So I look at our individual walk, and we tend to get a little bit too bogged down in the surface sins. Mm -hmm. They do need to be dealt with, but foundationally the issue is, who is your God? And you look at family lines coming out of the, uh, here in America, coming out of the Depression. You look at the generation of my father and so many of those people, their God was education, their God was the corporate career path, and so on. You look at my generation. By then, the security of the corporate world was a bunch of hooey. It was bondage. No, security and freedom comes from entrepreneurship. And so owning your business became the God. And there's a thousand different gods that humanism has proposed. And our entering into freedom is predicated on our repudiating our dependence on those gods, be it the family, be it the community, be it our religion, our church, be it our finances, be it our college alma mater or whatever and saying, Jesus the Christ of Nazareth is my sovereign. I bow the knee to him, and I repudiate every other ancestor from Adam down to me that has had any other God, because my God, Jesus Christ, and this covenant is supreme, superior, above every and any other agreement that any other human being tried to make on my behalf. You know, the other cool thing... And this is this really good, um, Arthur, this is really good stuff. You know, one of the things that I realize God is trying to do with his body is connect us into his government. 
Agreed. You know, he's trying to connect us into his government. That, that's the kingdom, right? The whole idea of the kingdom is plugging into God's government so that we can partake of his culture, his society, his blessings, um, our inheritance in him. It, it's, um, you know, and so he's trying to get us plugged into his government. But when we, when we make him our God and our centerpiece, we get all the blessings of surrendering and submitting to his government. When we're submitting to these other false gods and stuff that our forefathers did or whatever, in a sense, it's almost like we're submitting ourselves under their governments. Agreed. And so they're trying to pull in these counterfeit governments to make legislations against our lives. And they're saying, well, but you're under our government. Look at what your daddy did. Um, and sometimes, yeah, we are doing the same thing because we get caught up in that generational sin and we are in that bondage and we need to repent of all of that. But, you know, I think the deeper picture is look at this beautiful agenda of God to provide us revelation so we understand we are not just getting free of sin. We're actually plugging into his government in the process. And that plugging in allows for which, I mean, you, and you're nailing it when you say the weaving in of his agenda into our realm and lives and um it's 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 just a beautiful picture uh when believers fully plug into the government of god arthur the world is going to change it's not going to look the way it does now i agree totally. <laughs> and um mm, mm, so good okay so we talked about time We've talked about land. We've talked about community. We've talked about birthright. The last one is office. So unless you had more you wanted to add on any of the first four levels of holiness, I want you to tell us about office. Sure. Simple American illustration. Ted Kennedy died, and there was an election. There was a Republican by the name of Scott Brown that was running for that seat and the refusal says oh no we can't have a republican in there that's ted kennedy's seat and he said no it's not this seat belongs to the people of massachusetts anyway he won on a conservative uh, ticket and was sworn into office representing the state of massachusetts in the senate and as soon as he did he began to do things that were opposite of his campaign promises now, on the one hand, that is common for all politicians. On the other hand, we here in the States have been electing godly politicians for everything from dog catcher to governor and senator for the last 40 years. And invariably, as soon as they get sworn into office, they get a lobotomy and forget everything about their campaign promises and the God that they once knew. There's a reason for that. When they're sworn into office, they're entering into covenant with all of the history of that office. So in his case, we have, what, 220 years back in that day of the existence of the Senate offices for Massachusetts, and he became overwhelmed, devoured by the cumulative history of the office. There have been some good people from Massachusetts, and there have been some other people from Massachusetts, but either way, he was marinated in the swamp when he entered into covenant with that office. This is the case with everybody. When you take a job that has a definable title, 
unless you're the first person to ever hold that job, you are entering into a stream of history and you become defiled. I had a lady who was remarkable in her character, administrative skills. She was church manager or something of that nature. And it was horrible. It took her so much effort to get anything done. I finally asked her if she was the first person out of office. She said, oh, no. I took over from Jezebel herself. And I said, there's your problem. Jezebel left, but Jezebel left all of her cooties in the office. You stepped into her office, and you are under all of her junk. She went back the next day, sat down in her chair, and cleaned up all of the defilement left by her predecessor, and things changed within one week. We see this in Scripture very clearly with Jeroboam. After four generations, God wiped out Jeroboam. He put in a totally different dynasty, different family line. Wiped them out, another, another. I forget how many dynasties there were in the nation of Israel before they went into captivity. And every single dynasty did what? They committed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin. Why? Because the office of king of Israel was never cleansed. And you can murder an entire family line, an entire dynasty, kill all the kids of that wicked king, bring in a whole different bloodline, plop them down on that throne, and as soon as they're sworn into office, the throne eats their lunch, regardless of what their intentions may have been. So whether you're a pastor or you are third assistant business vice president or any other office, secretary, it doesn't matter. If your job has any sort of a title to it, and somebody has been there before, it behooves you to bring the blood of Christ to bear on that office, to cleanse it, to sanctify it, to redeem it, and to then leave an imprint of your life on it. So let's go positive here instead of negative and say that you're planning to retire someday. You are vice president of whatever company, you're planning to move on down the road, somebody else is going to take your office, and the question that I would place there is, what imprint do you want to leave? For this individual that's coming in behind you into this secular company, he doesn't know God, doesn't care about God, he's just on the career ladder hoping to move up from VP to president, CEO to chairman of the board. What can you do in the 15 years that you have left in your role as vice president to leave a profound spiritual imprint on the office? Is it going to be great vision? Is it going to be courage to make the hard choices? Is it going to be wisdom and managing those under you? What is it going to be? From your design, you're going to take access some of the immense scrabble letters of biblical principles that are available and weave together some flavor of holiness to leave in that office. And nowhere is this more important, I think, than on the worship team. It is astounding how deeply imprinted evil can become when it is done in the context of worship. When somebody is worshiping with a spirit of competition, when somebody is worshiping to be seen performance, when somebody is worshiping with bitterness in their heart because they should be the lead player instead of the second, and they're in that office of worship, it defiles the office so deeply. You see this in Malachi. God is furious, chapter 2, at the priests. He said, you're doing your job in a lackadaisical way. You're saying, what a burden. You, you consider it bad luck that you were born into the priesthood. And God is livid, furious. He says to them, 
that he is going to smear the excrement from the sacrifices on their faces, and then he's going to curse their blessings. So when somebody is doing priestly ministerial work, whether you're a pastor or you're a worship leader or you are a healer, and you see this burden or you're doing it for filthy lucre, the depths of the imprint of evil that you leave on that office is terrifying. And if somebody comes after you because your sins finally catch up with you and you get booted, it behooves them to cleanse that office, to scrub it down, and be sure that they are not saddled with the defilement of their predecessors. You know, I, I can just as you're talking about this, it's like, wait a minute. Uh, you just see a whole bunch of dots connect. It's like, why does everybody that become police chief in that particular city get corrupted? Or think. why does the mayor of Chicago always turn out? To, why? You know, it, it, you, you have all these questions and it's like, huh, you know. There you go. Is it the office that actually bears the curse you're saying yes and i am um just like yeah that honestly that makes a lot of sense and and so the the mystery that this unlocks is when we in our lives as believers that are you know navigating through different things see promotions get put in positions get this office or that office we have to come with the revelation like look it doesn't take much but the blood of Jesus Christ and an act of faith to cleanse an office. It doesn't sound like it's that complicated, but it just has to be done. And if we go forward in our promotions, in our lives, in our whatever directions God is taking us in, cleansing every office we step into as we are taking it, we're actually opening room for the fullness of God's expression through our lives and, and, and the fullness of the revealing of his purpose for putting us in the positions he does. And Absolutely. cutting the devil's access to sabotaging us. Wow. So let's do three other things here. Mm -hmm. Go with me to Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Moses' first marriage to Keturah failed. Not to Keturah, to Zipporah. Moses' first marriage to Zipporah failed and he married another gal, she was black. This is the first reference of racism in scripture that Aaron and Miriam got mad at uh, Moses for an interracial marriage. Well, God got furious at them for their racism, and he called the three of them to the entrance to the tabernacle and just dressed down Aaron and Miriam for their racism. Now notice what happens. He curses Miriam with leprosy. It was a very poetic curse. He said, look, girl, you don't like black skin? I'll give you some white skin. How about that? And he left Aaron completely untouched. Yet scripture is clear that Aaron was just as racist as Miriam. Why? Because God could not bring himself to defile the office of high priest with leprosy. So even though the man deserved it, God protected his office. Now, in the end of the story, Aaron pleaded for Miriam, and she only got a seven-day sentence uh, the rest of her life. 
but number one, God's attitude about racism is pretty unambiguous, and number two, his concern about office is very significant. So take that picture, and let's come to a very mundane picture. Man, woman, office, husband, wife, marriage breakdown, divorce. The husband makes a very clear list of the things he never, ever wants to see in his life again. And he vets his next wife to be sure that she doesn't have any of these bad habits. He marries her and puts her in the office of his first wife. She is now charged with being utterly unlike the first wife while she is marinated in all of the junk from the first wife. You think maybe there's going to be some difficulties for that newlywed? I think so. So just on a very basic level of cleansing those offices, it changes things. A very dramatic story from a man who came to me about his son. His son was a mess. I asked my standard question, well, when did it start? And it started right at birth. I did a little more digging, and we found out that there was a curse on birth order, that the secondborns were cursed in that generation and the next generation, or in the generation before, the one before that. We found three generations where the secondborn child was cursed. And when he broke that curse off the secondborn office, from one day to the next, there was a dramatic change in his son, who, by the way, was locked up in a mental institution. He was that bad. Mm-hmm. Now let's bring this back to SRA. Obviously, in SRA, there's a whole lot of brokenness, a whole lot of breaking that goes on, but there's a significant amount of installing either parts of an individual or the whole into different occult offices. The, you know, consort of this demon or the princess of that or the queen of whatever. And we don't need to know the name of every occult office. We don't have time for that anyway. It's too ugly. But to simply sit down and invoke baptism. Baptism is one of the most precious acts because it is death. We die with Christ. We go into the waters of baptism as one person. We are crucified with him. We are buried with him. We come up out of that water in newness of life, resurrection life. And to stand there, as I've done with a number of survivors, take them down to the Pacific Ocean, and they stand there and read a renunciation. They're renouncing all the stuff they know, but they include in that renunciation every single office that they were ever placed into or any part of theirs was placed into by with or without your knowledge, under duress, whatever. We use whatever legal language we have, and they renounce those offices, that those offices are attached to the person that's going to die. And then they go in that Pacific Ocean, and I kill them good. And they come out of that water, a new person with all of those offices left behind in the Pacific Ocean. And from time to time, the enemy will give me some lip and say, well, yes, she was promised to me. I said, "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm, no, no. That previous person was promised to you. You had legal right to her. I killed the person. They're out in the Pacific Ocean. Go help yourself to that person. This person 
you have no legal right to. She owes you nothing in that office. Don't give me this slip because I know better I was there. She's dead. Go help yourself to the dead person. This person is not in that office anymore at all. Baptism is a powerful, powerful tool for getting people out of offices that they never intended to be in. Arthur, uh, we have been talking about the five levels of holiness. Um, Folks, let me just say this. Uh, Christianity is not boring and lifeless. It's not a list of rules that God made to make you miserable so you could get to heaven and not go to hell. Like, that is not Christianity. Christianity is all about the revealing of Christ in us and about the revealing of God's government in the earth. And I'll tell you what, uh, God has plans for us that we can't even ask, think, or imagine. And, you know, today we've been talking about some keys that will help you to unlock all that God has for you, because, you know, many Christians, and I've said this for a long time, walk far beneath their level of inheritance in Christ. We're not, we have it, but we don't walk in it. And these are keys that will unlock it. So, you know, Arthur, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your effort to, to, to let the Holy Spirit teach this to you and to explain it to us. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we close out this program? Very simple. It works. I have been under five out of five curses, and the hardship that I experienced was chalked up to God building character in us. And you know, <laughs> I believe in character, but that gets a little bit overrated sometimes. And I know what it's like to be out from under all five of those curses. And I really like having clean time, having the power of righteous land driving what I'm doing, and a righteous community, a birthright that's been redeemed, and an office that is not contaminated by my predecessors. I've been both places. I like where I am now. Amen. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, I have been talking today with Arthur Burke. You can find him and a lot of the products and uh, teachings that he offers at his website, the slg.com which stands for Sapphire Leadership Group Arthur thank you so much for joining me today on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall and folks until next time God bless and Godspeed Discovering the Truth with Dan DeBall is the premier radio program designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program has been a production of Bride Ministries. You can find us at www.bridemovement.com. At our website, you can contact us access resources, and support us with donations. We need partners in order to continue to produce our vision, which is to promote unity in the body of Christ worldwide and assist in the creation and development of sheep nations. Partner with us and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Until next time. 
God bless and Godspeed.